welcome back to again another episode of the DD Geopolitics Podcast. We are joined once again by the one and only my favorite Pepe Escobar. He is a columnist at The Cradle, editor at large at Asia Times, and an independent geopolitical analyst focused on Eurasia. How are you? It's so good to have you back. <laughs> Hi everybody, greetings from <laughs> NATO Stan. I'm still in NATO Stan. <laughs> Back in NATO Stan. Yeah, but only for the next 48 hours. I'm leaving on Friday. Thank heavens. <laughs> <laughs> Where are you going? Central Asia. Oh, I'm so excited. And what are you going to do there? But I guess uh, I need to go to the heartland uh, every year. So I'm going back to the heartland to see what's going on, especially the, the three Central Asian stands, uh, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, and Kazakhstan. Uh, and that's what I do with Southeast Asia as well. I'll be going to Southeast Asia in October to see what's going on in Southeast Asia, so Thailand, Cambodia, Vietnam, etc. And meanwhile, I'll be in Russia. So that's it. I'll be on the road for the next three months, nonstop. <laughs> So where you just got back from Russia, right? No, no, that was a while ago. Uh, I, I spent two months in Russia and I got back after Victory Day. Mm. And then I was in NATO stand for a while. I went to Spain. <laughs> uh, I'd just been to Sicily. But in, uh, in the meantime, I was in Brazil. I was invited for a series of conferences in Brazil. So I spent like a little over two weeks in four big cities in Brazil was great because uh, the conferences were packed, the questions were excellent. And uh, and I had to start speaking Portuguese again, which is something I never do. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, not, a hard, not, a, not an easy language. Yes, and, uh, and if you don't speak it for a long a while, you lose uh, the argot, you lose the slang, you know, and I, I learned so many extraordinary slangy expressions, amazing, from different parts of the country, you know, from the, from the south, from the southeast, it was fascinating, it was really great, and, uh, and for me it was important to see what's going on with this new Lula government, and uh, that's a very complicated story, you know. Well, not to get too deep into it, do you see Brazil as being still upholding that part of BRICS and, and being engaged in that and in the international kind of? You know, this, this, is a very, this is a very good question because the answer, it's very complex. Uh, I hate to give all of you guys a, a short answer, but okay. Let's try the three-minute version, right? Brazil is under enormous pressure by the Americans. Uh, I think many of you know that Jake Sullivan, uh, during the transition uh, from Bolsonaro to Lula, Jake Sullivan dropped in in Brasilia with the famous list. He said, look, we supported you. We supported you diplomatically. We wanted to, to have democracy back in Brazil. And here's the list. And the list is horrible because it includes ministries that the Americans practically remote control. And obviously Lula, he had to, after all, he was supported by the Americans uh, before, during, and right after the election. And the problem is Lula is, uh, Lula is a master negotiator and uh, he's very good at equilibrium in terms of geopolitics, uh, 
but he knows that his margin of maneuver is uh, extremely slim. So he cannot antagonize the Americas in any major way, especially when he starts talking about de-dollarization. And at the same time, he knows that Brazil is respected all across the global south as one of the leaders of the global south and one of the leaders at BRICS. So at the moment, they are not a leader at BRICS. The actual leaders of BRICS are Russia and China. The, the agenda of BRICS and BRICS suspension is basically, uh, I would say, suggested, to put it diplomatically, by Moscow and Beijing. Uh, the good thing about BRICS is everything is by consensus. So obviously the other ones, uh, they have to agree, of course, with the, with the major directives. But their margin of maneuver uh, as weak links is not as high as two real sovereigns, which is the case of Russia and China. So Brazil inside BRICS, uh, with the expansion to BRICS Plus, they run the risk of becoming a minor player just like South Africa is already a minor player. And India is an enormously complex case because India, they're always hedging their bets. They still don't know if they're going to follow uh, the Americans on quad uh, and all of that bullshit, or if they're going to carve a path as a true leader of the global South. And that includes being a true leader in all these organizations, BRICS, Shanghai Cooperation Organization, etc. So, so the dynamics inside BRICS is very complicated, and, and I'm very, I'm very sorry to say, uh, in realpolitik terms, that uh, Brazil is not a major player as it stands. It may become one later on, but considering how much the Americans look at Brazil, they say we cannot Brazil let go, and uh, if they start. Uh, uh, emitting signals that they are aligned with the other side between commas, uh, hybrid war is going to be unleashed upon them. So it's a, it's a, it's a very, very fragile situation, to say the least, you know. Well, <clears throat> you kind of brought it up in while you were talking, and I'd kinda, I kind of want to ask, because what I'm seeing is that I, what I feel is that the West is in a very weakened state right now, globally speaking. So do you see this as I'm hopeful? I'm always too hopeful. I'm, I think Pepe's also a romantic like me. But do you see, <laughs> do you see South, South and Latin America kind of utilizing this opportunity as well? Maybe it could be a good opportunity for Brazil to get out from under that yoke kind of? Look, this is uh, this is another excellent question that would require like a day <laughs> to, to, to you know to answer you properly. The problem, once again, is the comprador elites in all these um, South American, Latin American countries. These are the most uh, rapacious and ignorant, arrogant, and corrupt elites you know among. The, the most corrupt elites in the world. I, I happened, unfortunately, to know the Brazilians very well and a little bit of the Argentinians as well. And this is the problem because, uh, first of all, they hate the indigenous population. They are not real patriots. They, uh, they hate the fact that, uh, most of them, they hate the fact that they are Argentinians or Brazilians. They would love to be Americans living in Miami. Or, or <laughs> exactly, and laundering their money in Dubai or the Cayman Islands. It's absolutely disgusting. Uh, 
even some of them are well educated they send their kids to Yale to Columbia to Stanford etc but still they they keep this mindset of a comprador elite you know uh, so they are in the wrong country the only thing uh, that Brazil and Argentina means for them is uh, places to be exploited by their companies by their shady dealings etc so so these are the people who basically prevent very wealthy countries in terms of natural resources and tremendous potential, uh, young populations, uh, hardworking, like Brazil and Argentina, to become first-class powers. Brazil, uh, without the Bolsonaro interregnum, today could be the fifth largest uh, economic power in the world. They were almost already there. And now they are 12th or 13th and still going down. And the Lula government, Lula himself and the Lula government, they have an enormous task ahead. And because Lula is so good in terms of balancing interests, the country is growing again. They are little by little reducing unemployment. Uh, um, uh, adverse interests are not complaining too much because the stock exchange is up and the dollar is down. Not too much, but a little bit compared to the previous years. So, so the country is relatively stable, but relatively in Brazil means a lot, much more than in other latitudes, you know. Uh, at least the country is not going down like it was during the Bolsonaro years. That's, that's an enormous advancement. And at the same time, uh, internally, to confront all these interests is very hard for, for Lula when his own government is infiltrated by foreign interests, and you know exactly who I'm talking about, and in Congress and the Senate, uh, he's a minority. So he has to compose with these people all the time. He has to cajole them. He has to talk to them. He's very good at that. But he spends most of the, his time basically convincing other people about uh, things that he is absolutely sure are needed to implement in the country. So once again, it's very fragile internally. And of course, uh, uh, in South American terms, they have the possibility of uh, uh, reinvigorating the UNASUR uh, association. Uh, once again, there is a sort of pink tide across South America, but uh, shades of pink and shades of gray coexisting. You know, uh, you have to know exactly how to deal with the Colombians. Very complicated. With the Peruvians, also very complicated. Argentina, they are in dire straits economically. Can you believe that they got basically uh, a loan from the Chinese in Yuan to pay an IMF loan. So basically, they got a loan to be able to keep paying loans to the IMF. It's a completely I, I, crazy situation. I can yeah. believe it. Argentina yeah. is, at least in terms of growth, not doing too badly as of last year. But because of the persistent drought, I think that good luck that Fernandez has had since uh, they emerged from COVID is about to run out. Yeah. You know, I you're mean, right. Yeah. Because Argentina has these fantastic stop-start dynamics where sudden, which is where everybody keeps uh, harping on, I think unfairly, where it's a disaster. But actually, Argentina has these periods where it's extremely dynamic, but it's never sustained. Um, and there's actually a good case in point recently because 
after in recovering from COVID, they've grown faster than Chile, but you would never know this, both because um, the Western press doesn't like Argentina because Argentine workers do things like strike and Argentina still has <laughs> some strong labor unions, whereas Chileans have be, been told their place and keep their place. Exactly. Uh, so, somewhat contra, but that's essentially why I say they like Chile. They really love the Pinochet constitution, and they don't like the fact that um, the Argentine military was both more incompetent and, in its own way, less brutal than the Chilean military. But that's a, a whole another topic. Um, I think uh, bringing up the question of Brazil, one thing looking at the Congress that I'm interested in is Lula became president. Why is it, therefore, that, that in congressional elections, that didn't translate into any sort of resurgence of the Pete? And why is it that the MDB refuses to die? Well, uh, there's, a, there's a short answer to this question, because Lula is extremely popular, at least with 50% uh, of the population, I would say around 60 to 70% all across Brazil, not in the big cities. It's different, for instance. He has tremendous problems in the big cities, as São Paulo and Rio. But if you go to the North Seas, for instance, or, to, or north of Brazil, Lula is uh, almost a, a, a unanimous, you know. And the Workers' Party is still uh, directly connected with horrible corruption scandals. And uh, another thing that uh, uh, I'm very, very sorry to, to admit, but you have to if you're doing real politics. Uh, the people at the vanguard, let's put it this way, or at least in the leadership of the Workers' Party, they are extremely mediocre, extremely mediocre. And this is terrible. Some of the best cadres that they had left or rejected the party or were appalled by the levels of corruption. And uh, the people who are now becoming ministers or came, came back or the people who are in the... Uh, Inner work that control the inner workings of the, the party, they are really mediocre. So, uh, this, this is absolutely terrible. If you think the Democrats are mediocre in, in the US, take a look, take a look at uh, some parties in, uh, in the global south, like the Workers' Party in Brazil. So, so this explains this dichotomy between the, the Workers' Party having lousy elections in, in, in many key states in Brazil and Lula being elected. There you go. So here is another question, I think, because one of the uh, key developments in the past few weeks, and it will touch upon a lot of subjects, and so therefore we'll have a lot of questions, and I think we'll be looking forward to hearing your answers, is, all right, for the benefit of our listeners, why did the coup in Niger take place first? That's the first question to answer, because from that flow, a lot of others. Because finally, a new generation of young Africans, uh, they finally got the message. We need to get rid of France. We are basically colonies being exploited by the French, and we have to do anything, something and anything about it. Uh, it started with Mali, then Burkina Faso, with Guinea, uh, now with Niger. Uh, Algeria has very good relations with both uh, China and Russia, and they are a top candidate to become a member of BRICS+, uh, if not in the first wave, maybe in the second wave. 
so uh, what we're watching essentially is a sort of belt mm. from Senegal to 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 the west to Eritrea in the east of Africa that <clears throat> sooner or later and I would say sooner will become they will get rid not only of the French but also of remnants of uh, uh, European domination whatever that is and this is all across the Sahel so when you see the what's being played at the Maghreb in the north and, and, and to the south in the Sahel is, I would say, a second wave of rejection of colonialism, rejection of neo-colonialism. Um, each of the coups, of course, and each of the military rebellions, let's put it this way, they have their own dynamics, of course. But uh, when you look at the, the profile of these uh, military, the, the new military leaders, like uh, Ibrahim Traore, the, the military leader in Mali, the guy is 35, uh, he's well-educated, uh, he's a patriot, he's a nationalist, he knows exactly how Africa has been exploited, not only by the French, but all the other European powers uh, relentlessly since the so-called uh, decolonization era. And now they finally, okay, it's now or never. And obviously yeah. they, were, they were looking at the rest of the world in terms of uh, decolonization efforts in West Asia, in, in Southeast Asia. And they learned a lot from, they learned a lot from the Algerians. They learned a lot from the Vietnamese. They learned a lot from the Iranians. They learned a lot from Hezbollah. And there you go. And now they're applying their lessons in, in the Sahel. So, so this is a major, big, absolutely major development. And obviously, uh, well, I am, I'm, I'm talking from Paris to you guys. This is where I live. <laughs> part, yeah, uh, This is where I live part of the year. This is where I have practically nobody to talk to, as I always tell my friends uh, everywhere. Uh, in North America, across Europe, in Asia, etc. So uh, I when I come here, basically I stay home, and uh, and of course I really see France when I go outside of Paris, when I go to Normandy, when I mm. go to, to Bretagne. This is real France, you know. And and then and, and then and when I talk to my friends who live in the South, for instance, then then you see what's really happening. Paris is a bubble, of course, and Paris is a bubble basically controlled by. The central government, which is happens to be here, and the people who control Paris basically are the same people, the same families who study in the same schools. And obviously, if you see a foreigner saying, "Look, you're bullshit," you are immediately ostracized. I have been ostracized by some of my best friends, in fact, like saying, "I went to the other side. I went to the dark side." In fact, so they think that I am Darth Vader, you know. So it's 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 really ridiculous, and the conversations that you can have about what's going on in France, the French political system, what they call France-Afrique, which is the French system that basically continues to colonize basically Western Africa and parts of Central Africa. You talk about this with uh, Italians, with Spaniards. This is what I did two months ago. I was in a conference in Ibiza and we were talking about that with, with Germans, with Spanish businessmen, with Portuguese, but not with French. And if you are here, you talk to French who are completely ostracized, you know, people who have uh, small websites or who cannot be published by the big uh, publishing houses because they have been denounced as uh, infiltrators of foreign agents, etc. 
if you have any uh, uh, political position nowadays which is apart from uh, Macronism, which is the religion espoused by Le Petit Roi, the little king at the Elysee Palace, you are immediately marginalized. So, and obviously, so when you, yesterday, two days ago, I turned on the, the eight o'clock news to see what they're talking about Niger. They refuse to admit that they are being kicked out of large parts of Africa. It's simple as that. For them, this is inadmissible. It's a bunch of barbarians. It's a bunch of terror. In fact, they are branding the new uh, Niger government as a bunch of terrorists. You say that Niger is going to become the new Al-Qaeda in, um, in the Islamic Maghreb, now new Al-Qaeda in the Sahel, and it's going to be a terrorist focus, uh, threatening the whole of Africa and even Europe. So obviously you cannot have a, a, an enlightened conversation with these people, which obviously uh, the French ruling class who always profited from all that. So, uh, but in terms of understanding what's going on in Africa, the Italians are starting to get the picture, the Germans got the picture, and obviously uh, people in West Asia, uh, in Lebanon, in Syria, in uh, Iran, they totally understand what's going on in Africa, and not to mention our Russian and Chinese friends, which are going to profit from from it handsomely in terms of uh, new businesses, new uh, connectivity corridors, and more African nations who are going to become even more attached to multilateral organizations that escape uh, World Bank, IMF, and uh, all the usual suspects that we know. So expect sooner or later, maybe medium term, a lot of African nations who will become members of BRICS Plus. And some of them are already making moves to, which is fantastic, they want to be part of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Can you imagine like having Algeria as part of the SCO? This would be something which is not impossible. It's not impossible at all. The SCO uh, could be a mechanism only for Eurasia, but they are trying to get uh, to expand uh, to other parts of the global south and the Eurasia Economic Union. That's even more interesting. They are planning to strike free uh, trade deals with nations all over the spectrum. They already have a, um, a deal with Cuba. So why not other nations in, in Latin America and why not other nations in Africa? So this is uh, the scope of this uh, new African decolonization movement is so huge. And the great thing is this was being discussed in uh, St. Petersburg last week. Uh, this morning I was talking to one of my uh, my sources at, at the summit. I didn't go for a lot of reasons, but I had some excellent sources. And, and they were telling me, you have no idea how well received they were and how ecstatic they were that now they are being recognized as global players. Can you imagine? Mali, Burkina Faso, uh, Guinea, uh, Equatorial Guinea, Algeria, Morocco, everybody. You know, it's, it's fantastic. It's, fantastic. It, it's a brand new world for them and they are absolutely expected to be part of this brand new world and the fact that they are being welcomed by these new multilateral organizations which are basically global south organizations do you want to go down the rabbit hole a little bit with me like yes a little totally bit, <laughs> like a little <laughs> bit of conspiracy theory so with all of the goings on so this is going to pretty much include the whole all of it. So we have this green deal, right? This green deal falls apart. 
Russia says, I'm not doing your drain deal anymore. You don't meet my oblig the obligations. Obligations, I right. And I, I think you're using it for weapons. Russia comes out and says, I they have proof. Right. I've tested these proof. ships. They have tested positive for weapons. No more grain deal. Though Turkey and Ukraine start freaking out, right? They're freaking out about the grain deal. So Russia's like, I'm doing whatever. Russia starts having their meetings. They have the Russia Africa summit. They know that they're that they're like just draining weapons out of the West during this counteroffensive in Ukraine. The president of Burkina Faso says these we're getting the terrorists in my country are getting weapons from Turkey. They're, or no, he didn't say they're getting from Turkey. He said they're getting American weapons. Mm -hmm. They're getting American weapons. So obviously these weapons are traveling through that pipeline, right? Turkey into Syria, probably down south into Africa. Oh, and but that, yeah. Yes. So uh, then don't you think that while we're at the Russia Africa summit that Putin says this is going to be your best chance. Like I don't see the, any any way that these countries in Africa are are I mean coming together and rising up without at least a, a Russia or a China saying like go ahead and 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 we got your back like now's the time to go. Ah, but there's no question that we got your back message. They've been having it for, I would say, at least a year or so, especially this year, since the beginning of this year, no question, from both Russia and China. China, of course, because of uh, their enormous investments in at least 34 to 35 uh, African nations, and Russia because they, their diplomatic effort especially since the beginning of the year, has been tremendous all across Africa, preparing the Russia-Africa summit. Uh, I was in Moscow uh, during a key meeting preparing this summit. This was the parliamentarian summit in Moscow. It was in uh, early April, if I'm not mistaken. Everybody was there. Yes, it was fantastic. I remember very well. You know why? The morning that Xi Jinping arrived in Moscow, Moscow was already taken over by Africans. Uh, all, all the central hotels, the, the delegations were staying in the central hotels. And uh, it was a beautiful palace uh, nearby the Duma where they were having the parliamentarian discussions. And they were basically preparing the agenda and the meetings for the summit last week. So, so this was uh, the culmination of a long diplomatic process. And you know that the Russians, when they apply themselves diplomatically, they are absolutely unrivaled all across the world, right? So uh, obviously these uh, leaderships that had already um, uh, <laughs> subverted the old order in their countries, they were emboldened and the new ones like Niger, they were looking around and said, okay, now it's our time. And of course, and, and now it's uh, uh, the fact that France lost three in a row, it's uh, nobody would think about it. Mali, Burkina, and now Niger, it's three in a row. And it could be four soon. Uh, no, no, nobody foresaw that. And obviously there are all sorts of, um, usual suspect conspiracy theories that uh, Wagner is involved in all of it. No, that's not true. Wagner, for instance, their presence in Africa, some places, yes, like the Central Arab Republic, uh, Central African Republic, I'm sorry, very, very strong. 
Mali, they called Wagner to basically fight terrorism for them, fight uh, spin-offs of Al-Qaeda and, uh, and ISIS in Africa. But Niger is a completely different story. Niger is basically, we had enough of being one of the poorest nations in the world and exporting all our uranium to these, uh, okay, motherfuckers in Paris, right? You can say, you can say <laughs> we can, You can say it, all right. Well, I mean, so. even besides, if we look at the statistics, I mean, we know what AFRICOM does in Africa. We look at the statistics yes. and the, the terrorist attacks in Niger in the past couple of years have upticked nine times 900 or actually times nine times a thousand, like times a thousand with these American made weapons. Exactly. exactly. So I mean, it, like, and I was lucky enough to get to talk to a Malian the other night and they have, they were like, Wagner comes in and does what we ask them to do. Like exactly. They are, That's the they're point. paid to, they're not paid to serve. Russia's public interest, like political interests here. We pay them, they do what they do. And when we stop paying them, they leave. They don't stay, stick around. That's so, exactly the point. Yeah. They are, he said he they are fighting seen, terrorists. Yeah. 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 And they are They're fighting a terror enabled, uh, Western enabled terror outfits, just like uh, the Russians, Hezbollah, and uh, Iranian militias are fighting those people in Syria. It's exactly the same thing. And Wagner, obviously, they were very active in Syria as well. So what they're doing in Mali and Central uh, uh, African Republic is more or less what they did in Syria. And it's what they uh, are still doing in Donbass, or were still doing in Donbass. That's a very complicated <laughs> stuff. But the, the, but the fact that Prigozhin was at the Russian-African summit and uh, as a superstar in the backstage, that was fantastic. Because well, I saw you. I saw you very excited about it. <laughs> I don't know, but, but this was, come on, this was, uh, this was totally uh, Mick Jagger stuff, isn't it? Uh, yeah. He shows up and everybody wants to shake his hand and talk yeah. and have intimate conversations with him. <laughs> which and proves if, what, if everybody's proves happy, what, then what's the problem? Everybody's happy. happy. Which proves once again that that uh, Maskirovska inside the Maskirovka that happened <laughs> two months ago, it's still going on. <laughs> yeah. And it, yeah. Fooled, it fooled everybody in the West. Um. Like, oh my god uh, we, we've been hearing for a year how bad russia is at propaganda but i mean this has been like a four-month story that they've just manufactured and have just literally changed the world with it like they've manufactured like the coup can't be real right we now know but there, like, but there was never the thing is that uh, the westerners could never understand because first of all because they don't have on the ground intel in Moscow and in Donbass. They don't know shit. Uh, and this is something that when you are in Moscow for a while, you see that they don't have nobody on the ground and they don't know shit of what happens. Can I leave it, our it, listeners in suspense? Because I think this actually is something that is best to come at at a bit of the end of a thread. Because No problem. Because I we'll think be back this, to it. I th Yes, because I think this 
it will be to use uh, the French quite purposefully, la pièce de la résistance, which ah. then, in that vein of using <laughs> French, I have to ask. La crème um, de la crème, right? <laughs> la crème de la crème. Si vous préférez, on peut se discuter cette uh, petite problème ici en l'Afrique de l'Ouest francophone en français. But I think our listeners might get a bit confused. So <laughs> what I think instead we will do is ask this. Okay, so everybody wants to get, they want to get rid of France. It's very, very clear that the French are uh, sharply disliked. The question yes. is why, okay, why now? I mean, it's not as if the French haven't done questionable things in Africa, but before um, political elites of all stripes, and the French tolerated, I say tolerated as if it's theirs to tolerate, but let's assume they're the big power in West Africa, which they were for a long time. They tolerated a wide variety of regimes, and a good example even over time and space is um, – uh, I'm forgetting his name, forgive me, the first president of Cote d'Ivoire, the one who they called Le Vieux. Oui, but mostly I forgot his, I forgot his name. Anyway, the yeah, first yeah. president of um, Cote d'Ivoire, the French, when he wanted to be a very smart developmentalist um, president, they helped him be a very smart president. Uh, developmentalist president when he wanted to go build a very expensive uh, capital city out in the middle of the jungle and getting even more personalistic and corrupt the french were like okay we'll help you do that too so long as the resources keep flowing to us you want to help your people we'll help you help your people you want to not care too much about them we'll do that for you too so long as the resources go to us and the french army will provide a backstop and yes. they tolerated Bokassa in uh, Central African Republic until he became – his craziness became too crazy for them to manage, and it was threatening the flow of resources and the stability of the country, in which case they got rid of him. Point being about this, the French actually, unlike the Americans, were far more flexible in terms of regime type and even with what the president of a country could and could not do, so long as the resources flowed to them. Exactly. And and even they do things, and you can see this when you open up Microsoft Word, that the French even did things like lobby on an international level for the different dialects of France, of each French of each of these countries to be recognized at an international level. So my, the point about that is that it's not as if the French were, like the Americans, always quite so heavy-handed and doing absolutely nothing to acknowledge their identity or their contribution to the world. But why is it suddenly now that the French are like um, are hated? Is it because they've gotten weaker, because they've gotten worse, or is there something else that I'm missing? Uh, no, well, a key point is that uh, everybody in Western Africa, Senegal, Mali, Mauritania, Burkina, Cote d'Ivoire, they follow what happens in France, and they, they follow the political uh, scenes in Paris relatively closely. They can see that uh, Macron, uh, la Macronie in general, the, the, Mac the Macronic thing is universally hated in France by at least 80% of the French, who are, of course, impotent to get rid of uh, the little king. And they also see that uh, how the only thing that is left essentially for France in terms of uh, exploitative uh, neocolonialism is plundering the, the former African colonies. Uh, 
it's fascinating, but I, I was I was getting into stuff that was said in the past by Mitterrand and Chirac, among others. And they said exactly the same thing. Mitterrand said that in the late uh, 50s, if I'm not mistaken, and Chirac said the same thing in the 70s. If France loses the African uh, colonies or sub-colonies or neo-colonies or non-colonies, we're fucked. This is essentially what they said. And they were absolute, and they knew it. And they had all reports saying it. Because we're going we're, we're gonna to lose not only uh, the resources that they basically give to us, or, but, of course, uh, all that gold. Uh, uh, Mali has 150, 160 gold mines and zero gold stashed in Bamako. Guess where all the gold is? Is, in, is here in Paris, at the Banque de France. Uh, that kind of stuff, you know. And now we have uh, a, a younger generation of true patriots that find, okay, uh, maybe this is our last chance to really decolonize. Because now we have, this is how they, they are thinking. Now we have Russia and China and uh, a great deal of the global south uh, covering our backs. So this might be, uh, I would say, an essay to answer your question. We, we still don't know in each individual nation the motivations. Uh, we know that there is an overall motivation, which is decolonization and how to do it. How to do it? Basically, I mean, it has to be a military coup. And you need to have a military that is uh, patriotic and has uh, the interests of the nation in the first place. And stop the and a stop the plundering mentality. This applies to Guinea, to Burkina, to Mali, and and to Niger, as well. And of course, once again, they studied what happened in different decolonization processes around the world. These people are, are you know, they, they they learned their lessons, and they also learned what uh, could happen if they did nothing. They could have an Iraqi destiny. They could have uh, Libya destiny, or they could have uh, Syria destiny. So, you know, all the, the, the historical examples were in front of them. Uh, Traore is very, I, I'm very impressed by Ibrahim Traore. He looks like uh, he, he did his homework for years. And even at a very <laughs> tender age of 35, he said, okay, it's now or never, it's my time, and I know how to do it. And for I mean, the moment, I just yeah. really hate this whole like, He's just some warlord without even... <laughs> He's just some warlord, yeah, of course. Yeah. Right, every African leader is just some warlord, uh, well, you know, exactly, that, right? Exactly. Unless they're one of our African leaders. Then they were exactly, democratically exactly. elected, right? In an in a election that we, we, we watched. It was free and fair. We saw it. We saw the whole thing. But uh, <laughs> so, I mean, we have a 35-year-old man who just his background trained by the UN fought in Mali, left mm -hmm. Mali, formed an anti-terrorism militia, killed terrorists in his own country, and is now beloved by the people. The, the, the easiest explanation is often the most correct, right? That's, mm -hmm. that's all there is to him. Like, he is just beloved by his people. And it's just like this weird, 
I don't know if it's ingrained racism or classism or whatever it is. It's just this weird thing that people have that none of this can be authentic, right? It can't happen like this in Africa. It's and essentially it's, racism. You're right. Yes, it's essentially it's like, racism. They had this. They had Thomas Sankara. They he we killed him. They had this. The, you act like these people don't know their own history. They've had freedom fighters. Exactly. They've had working class heroes. Like, this isn't just some warlord that picked up a gun one day and said, I'm taking over my entire country. That's that's crazy. That that doesn't even make sense. Of course not. But uh, but you know how the the international media uh, ecosphere work. No? Uh, when they don't understand uh, uh, a national liberation movement, which is these are national liberation movements, uh, the only plan A, that they don't even have a plan B, the only plan A that they have, which was taught to them by the CIA, is you demonize it. Uh, so it's a new warlord, a new Hitler, the new Saddam, or whatever. And this is what they're He's doing. the new Getulio Vargas. <laughs> the new Getulio Vargas. Well done. So, so this is what they're doing now. They have no, like I told you guys, uh, here in Paris, they have no idea what's going on in Niger. Period. And uh, I was told that they had a crisis meeting at the Elysee and nobody could give real politic answers. Nobody, nobody, including French, of course, obviously, including uh, all those French diplomats and the uh, GSE, uh, all those uh, connards. <laughs> they pose at the intellectuals of intelligence and all that. They didn't know anything. And, and this is interesting because when you when you talk to the old school Intel guys in France, which are old school, are very well educated with vast experience and all that, uh, and they are very critical of the new generations. They said these these uh, these young people or even these people who are in their forties now they don't know anything about anything. You know, um, they've been Americanized. They have been Americanized to an extent that uh, they lost touch of what's really happening in the global south and they lost touch with something that uh, france used to have during the the gaullist years as well and that's why they were relatively respected uh, in, in many places across uh, the global south they don't have that anymore they are basically carbon copies of the state department so obviously they cannot understand anything well, that would uh, perhaps then explain why it is that it appears to be clueless, because I've been looking on France losing its position in horror and the fact that the top political class seems utterly clueless, I think, helps explain a lot of things about why mm -hmm. there's no more deft. Uh, there's no more deft touch. There's no more um, sudden infusion of aid money to uh, buy better feeling or developmental project to show that France is your friend or no military intervention at just the right time before things get out of control because the situation is watched very closely and understood very well. And after all, they made sure to school the elites so that uh, everybody knows everybody. None of that anymore. Um, yeah. But then that then leads us on to the next question about this. So, okay. The coup d'etats take place. They happen. And the reaction of France is not to, oh, that's unfortunate. 
but we hope that we can work uh, with the new government. And as a matter of fact, we're going, we have this new idea, which we wanted to give to your predecessor, but unfortunately you overthrew him. But that's by the by. We have this great idea to continue our engagement with you and that you think will think you'll really like this. Instead, it's issuing threats, sanctions, and also uh, enlisting ECOWAS to perhaps do invasions. What is up with that, and why would Nigeria want to invade Niger? Which then also begs the other question, uh, which where we're starting to get to the rabbit hole and come back to the part where I interrupted you. Mm-hmm. What was the chief of staff of the armed forces of Algeria doing in Moscow, and why has Algeria signaled its support to Niger? Ah, that was a killer. Well, of course, Algeria and uh, uh, Russia are discussing BRICS, but that's the geoeconomic aspect and geopolitical, of course. Militarily, it's another story because they knew that if anything happens in Niger and Niger asks for our help, we'll give it to them. And Russia help to Niger can go through Algeria. We still don't know, of course, how that would happen. But there is a possibility. If there was a sort of NATO-sanctioned ECOWAS invasion of Niger uh, organized via Nigeria, which is something that uh, it might happen because Nigeria is an absolute mess economically uh, at the moment. So a wonderful way to change the subject would be fabricating an external enemy. But this, this is speculative at the moment. Uh, what is there is the possibility that Nigeria would be bribed by NATO, by the Americans, by the French, and using ECOWAS, which is an absolute piece of shit organization controlled by the Americans, the Brits, and the French. Uh, there, there's no African interest uh, uh, in, in terms of ruling ECOWAS. So Algeria and Russia were discussing, okay, how we could help these people. So we could have not only an alliance of uh, Burkina and Mali supporting Niger, but we could also have uh, Algeria. So at the moment, all of that is uh, uh, hanging in the air. Uh, What we heard these past 24 hours here is that because uh, the the Macron uh, system is so absolutely clueless about everything, the possibility of the French uh, organizing, condoning, or even encouraging some sort of invasion at the moment is very remote. First of all, because France follows the EU. And when I mean the EU, I mean the European Commission. And the obsession, as you... uh, as you know, and our audience knows, is still Ukraine. So they cannot open a second front at the moment. They wouldn't have uh, uh, the the, the weaponizing power, the the manpower, nothing. The the French have, what, 600, 700 troops in uh, in Niger, if if I'm not mistaken. And the Americans have a thousand in that base, in uh, that drone base in Agadez. That's not much, no? You cannot depose a, a, a new military government with uh, less than 2,000 troops. They're not going to airlift American and uh, EU, <laughs> EU scattered troops to Niger at the moment. No way. They can, they can barely handle what they're doing in Ukraine. So this is going to be 
uh, a very strong possibility is that there's some sort of backroom deal which will be organized short term, like the French approach the new military government in Niamey and say, look, okay, we still want to import your, your uranium. What's the price now? And we're willing to pay it. And they, they strike some sort of Erdogan-style bargain. You know, this is not impossible at the moment, considering that the French are so weak and considering that ECOVAS is also weak and considering that the Americans have other fish to fry than to start uh, an invasion in, uh, in Central Africa. So this is where we we are at the moment. I, I don't see a possibility of a, of this thing becoming a, a huge uh, military operation anytime soon. There, there will be some sort of, uh, and Algeria could work also as a middleman, as a qualified middleman and respected by all the players, including the French. Which uh, then, of course, leads uh, to the last question, back uh, where we were at the beginning when I interrupted, which <laughs> has to do with what you are calling the Maskirovka. So a bit of grounding for our listeners here who might be perhaps a bit lost in what we are referring to. On 24 June of this year, there was an attempted coup d'etat in Russia by the Wagner Group against. May I, may I interrupt you for one second? Of course. It was not a coup d'etat. Uh, but I'm getting. Uh, 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 but you may. But you can uh, come in with that when you give your answer because I'm setting up the framing here for wonderful uh, uh, for you to deconstruct de it, construct it, and tell us what you think happened. So yes. Um, on 24 June 2023, there was a coup d'etat attempt by a Wagner, the Wagner Group uh, PMC against the government of the Russian Federation. It was said by Prigozhin that he was aiming to get rid of Shoigu and Gerasimov and arrest them and that it was a march for justice because the Ukrainians were at Tokmak. And also, Wagner had been bombed by the Russian armed forces. And the end result was that um, it does appear as though a surveillance plane and an electronic warfare MI-8 helicopter of the Russian armed forces were shot down by Wagner. But given the tensions of um, 4,000 armed mercenaries, which only represented 20% of Wagner's active strength, joining the coup or mutiny or what have you. It was a nasty day, but a surprisingly uh, bloodless day. And at the end, Wagner called off its march on Moscow when it was clear that nobody had joined Prigozhin's rebellion or coup. He had no support for this in the armed forces, and the entire political class and military elite rallied not just around President Putin, but also around uh, Defense Minister Shoigu and gave their confidence to General of the Army Valery Gerasimov, the chief of the general staff. And then afterwards, it was intimated that um, Wagner would be disbanded because they were rebels and Putin never forgives traitors, so Prigozhin was not long for this world. 
That is the Western narrative. Oh, and including the fact that it shows that Russia's government was perilously close to collapse, even though the entire political class and military elite declared their loyalty and not one of them moved for the rebellion. Right. That's the conventional narrative. Um, please tear into this. Oh, God. And I have three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> no, you have the time that you want to take. No, the, pro the pro guys, the problem is I need to leave. Okay. Uh, that's, that's, I, I wish I, I didn't have to because there's another podcast. So, uh, okay, let me try to do this uh, the Hollywood way, right? I'm selling, I'm pitching a movie, right? First of all, this was not a coup. This was a union dispute, essentially. The problem is that the union leader, Prigozhin, uh, he had a tremendous problem with the big boss, Shoigu, much more than with the big, big boss, which is Gerasimov. The, uh, the bad blood between Prigozhin and Shoigu is something that it's in Moscow, it's uh, legendary already. Uh, I had a confirmation of the whole, even before the coup, in fact, what coup, sorry, even before the, uh, the subversion, two months before it, in fact, this was in late, uh, yeah, it was in late, uh, early May. I was in a, a cruise at the Moskva River. I cannot tell you what I was doing there. It's, it's, it's very, very important in terms of multipolarity, but it's, it remains a secret. And we stopped at one of the uh, anchor places uh, by the river, and uh, a Donbass commander who had become a politician got in. So I asked my hosts, can I ask him directly about Prigozhin? And they said, yeah, of course, no problem. So I asked him directly, and he knows all the players well, including Prigozhin. And he said, yes, basically it's an ego problem. Prigozhin thinks that uh, he should be in the position that Shoigu is. And he thinks that Shoigu is essentially incompetent. And he feels that he has been betrayed by the Minister of Defense every time that he was requesting more artillery, more weapons, etc. in Donbass. Well, so we have the uh, personal problems between these two main characters. At the same time, uh, Prigozhin had been telegraphing that uh, the situation was becoming unbearable and he would opt uh, for some, uh, I would say, desperate measures. And this is exactly what he did. He thought that he would have enough support among Wagner, uh, uh, enough support, I mean, tens of thousands of troops, to join on this march, which he qualified as peaceful, from Rostov to Moscow. Uh, and they were very well received in Rostov, by the way, Wagner, when the whole thing started. Because, of, of course, Rostov is one of the, the headquarters of uh, the Ministry of Defense. This is where, for instance, Surovkin uh, coordinates the war in Donbass. It's from Rostov, essentially. And then they started the march and they saw that they will be uh, joined by tens of thousands of Wagners basically to go to Moscow and request a personal meeting with Shoigu and preferably also with Gerasimov. There was nothing ever from the beginning 
of we are marching to Moscow to depose Vladimir Putin. This is absolute top class, I would say, CIA bullshit, which if you see it on the front page of the New York Times and the Washington Post, disqualifies it officially as bullshit. The problem is Putin felt betrayed personally. And this I got from some very good sources, I would say close to the Kremlin, but not inside the Kremlin. In fact, these sources are closer to the intel community. And they talk to me about the role of Bortnikov, the, the head of the FSB. Bortnikov was absolutely instrumental to defuse the whole situation because he got Lukashenko on board. Lukashenko talked to Bortnikov and he said, look, I can talk to Prigozhin and I'll try to defuse this whole thing. He did. So when he talked to Prigozhin and he tried to uh, defuse the whole thing, he afterwards he talked to, he phoned Bortnikov and said, look, it's done. We have a deal. And then Bortnikov told Putin. So uh, if my sources are correct, this is absolutely extraordinary because Putin was just surveilling the landscape and I said, okay, who is going to show up to defuse the situation? I'm just waiting. And the, guy, and the two guys who showed up are essential in what happens from now on. Lukashenko, which is the, the union, the, the relationship between Russia and uh, uh, Belarus, and Bortnikov, the head of uh, FSB, who obviously has uh, some uh, political career ahead of him when he leaves the FSB. And this is something that I would like to get into later on when I'm back in Moscow. Okay, so before I don't want to keep you hostage anymore. I know you're on yes. schedule. So I want to give a shout out to Mike P. Uh, I we I hope we answered some of your questions in the pod, but I do want to have Pepe back on to talk about uh, Chinese development programs. My in pleasure. Latin America. <laughs> uh, so Mike wanted to say thank you for your contrib to you, Pepe. Thank you for your contributions to our knowledge, despite blockage in the U.S. due to media cowardice. And then Lars said, Pepe, you are the best journalist reporter and are awakening and radicalizing multitudes. You are everywhere on the planet. Where can I find a current list of all your publications, articles, and interviews? Oh, that's that's very complicated because I don't know where to find it. <laughs> okay, uh, the short answer is, at the moment, I am publishing exclusives for three media. Uh, the Cradle in Beirut, uh, Sputnik Global, uh, Sputnik based in uh, Moscow and Strategic Culture, which is also uh, based in Moscow. A lot of people uh, republish my stuff all over the place and translate in several languages. So uh, if you have the title of one of the columns, you can find where else it was published and you can also find translations in Italian, Portuguese, French, Urdu, whatever, you know. Uh, I'm planning to open a sub stack in September, which will be a way of uh, uh, organizing everything that I have been publishing since forever, the past 30 years at least, and also an aggregator because I want to get a lot of people, including you guys, DD, uh, uh, related to the sub stack as well. I like the sub stack to be a sort of a, a central in terms of uh, analyzing the evolution of Eurasia integration, the place to go. 
where you're going to have my work and you're going to have links to work of several important people, media channels all over the world. And we are all doing the same thing, essentially. So you so, just warmed my lukewarm heart. Wonderful. I, I am so excited. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. It's a very complicated thing because I never even opened a, a website for me because I never had time. I travel a lot and it's my life is sometimes very messy, but now it's time. And a lot of people had been suggesting that I should open a Substack. So I'm going to do it. And this will be a link to very important conversations that we are having in Europe here. For that in Italy, especially and Russia, in terms of uh, uniting all these multipolar efforts everywhere and bring our African friends as well. So uh, I hope this is going to be big and interest a lot of people. It yeah, is. I, I can yeah. feel it. I can feel it. Something's, Thank you. Thank some you. sort of energy. You can feel the working class energy, Pepe. Yes, I can. And uh, man, I, uh, I, I need to hang out with the working class. I used to, you know where I used to do that? Uh, in Southeast Asia. I was hanging out with the working class in Thailand, in Cambodia, in Laos and all that. And when you come back to Europe, obviously, nah, you have a other complicated fish to fry. In Brazil as well, it was great. I talked to a lot of workers in Brazil, you know, pure, you know, certified working class. That was wonderful as well. And this is something I usually do when I go to Argentina as well. And I wish next year I'll have uh, the opportunity to do that in Africa. I, I miss traveling in Africa. The last time I, I traveled was in West Africa. I was backpacking West Africa. So Didi's uh, going to Africa. We're going to Africa. Wonderful. Way <laughs> to go. <laughs> okay, guys, I'm so sorry, but I have to no, leave. They're already calling me sorry. here. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. And look, let's do the next one on uh, China, BRICS, and Asia, right? Yes. Okay? Yes. Okay, guys, thank you so much. You rule. <laughs> you rule. And thank you all for listening. This has been another episode of the DD Geopolitics Podcast. Until next time.